Tonight, we are going to be looking at, oh, the first about 11 verses of 1 Thessalonians 5, looking at the sudden happening of the day of the Lord. You know, we've got the kids in with us tonight, and that's okay because it's actually a pretty exciting study. Um, I know that uh, a couple of you young ones have read like the Left Behind series and stuff, which are an exciting series, although um, I wouldn't necessarily take Tim LaHaye's eschatology to the bank. It means the way that he understands it. But I also personally don't think he's too far off. Um, but even in our elders meeting this morning, we were just talking about how, you know, there's just so many guys that we really love and respect that maybe don't land in exactly the same place that uh, I do. And I'm okay with that. I still love them and, and um, can learn from them and all that. So, um, but it's just my best understanding bringing the word to you guys tonight as we look at the day of the Lord. Now, you might remember uh, last week, uh, Casey kind of popped her hand up and said, Hey, um, when does the day of the Lord exactly start? And I was confused with... Um, Another phrase in the New Testament, the, um, the last days, uh, where, um, where the prophet Joel uh, says that the last days, you'll see this incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and is believed that technically like the last days begins from the ascension of Jesus and goes on, and that's why we see Peter quote Joel at the day of Pentecost, that in the last days, you'll see the visions and the dreams and the speaking in tongues and those kind of things happening. Um, but I had mentioned to her uh, that it was the day of the Lord that, be, that began then. Just making a clarification. Some of you might not even remember that. Some of you might. But she's not even in here to hear it. So good job. Ira, make sure to tell your mom all that. Okay? Okay. Boom. Uh, but the day of the Lord, all right? It's a phrase that we see come out of the Old Testament and it's the period of time when God will judge this wicked world and restore it to its former glory. It's a time known for God's wrath. It's a time known of, for destruction, for anguish, for pain, for judgment, but will be followed up by uh, the wonderful, glorious uh, rule of Jesus on earth. So, um, this day begins, to kind of answer Casey's question, who's not in here, the day of the Lord begins at the rapture of the church and ends at the new heaven and the new earth. So uh, between chapter 6 of Revelation and chapter 20 of Revelation is the day of the Lord. Um, and sandwiched in there is uh, what's called the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, three different sets of judgments, um, and the second coming of Jesus, and the millennial thousand-year reign of Jesus. Now, let's look at verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where it says, "...but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren..." You have no need that I should write to you. So remember from Acts chapter 17 that Paul spent a matter of about three weeks with the Thessalonians. It's 
pretty impressive that in his three-week little discipleship time that he had with them, he pretty much covered all things eschatology. Uh, so that's pretty impressive that those three weeks he's able to say, um, you don't really have any need that I should write you anything. I pretty much taught you kind of how it's all going to go down. He taught them about the prophetic times and the seasons regarding the return of Jesus. And so um, Paul might be surprised to look at the, the, the church today in 2017 and see so many people just lazy in their study of eschatology that don't really care. Um, because it's something Jesus cared about. It's something that Paul cared about. Something Peter cared about. Something John cared about. Uh, so we have this phrase, the day of the Lord, which was a familiar Old Testament idea. Uh, the idea behind this phrase, the day of the Lord, is essentially saying, this is God's time. Man has his day, and God has his day. So the day of the Lord is fulfilled when Jesus judges the earth as they've rejected him, and then he returns in glory. Uh, of course, you probably gathered already that the day of the Lord is not one day, but it's a number of days. It's over a thousand days. And uh, anyways, familiar Old Testament expression that, uh, that the Jews would have understood uh, from their reading of the prophets. Uh, in a sense, Paul is saying, you know that the Lord is coming quickly. I don't even have to tell you that. And we ought to know the times and the seasons, verse 1 tells us, concerning the times and the seasons. Is that something that you need to be taught? Uh, is that something that you're aware of? Um, it's the whole, we ought to be aware of what's going on around us. Jesus says in Matthew 16, verses 1 through 3, essentially it's the classic uh, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. Not many sailors here. Let's see, how can I put it about alfalfa? Um, lots of dew at 3 p.m. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, no, 3 a.m. Anyways. Uh, it'd be 3 a.m., I'm sure. Um, but Matthew tells us, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and tested him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. And then he calls them hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the sign of the times. It kind of shows us we ought to know the signs of the times. And our different fields that we're in, we're able to kind of tell what's going on by what's going on. And it ought to be true as well with, uh, in regard to Bible prophecy and the day of the Lord. Um, the season that we are in even points to the day of the Lord. And we're going to look at that in just a little bit. So, Keep your finger or a ribbon or a pen or whatever in our text tonight, 1 Thessalonians 5, and then flip over to Matthew chapter 24, just verse 3 is where we'll start there. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in Matthew 24 and even get into Matthew 25 tonight. Matthew 24 is what is called the Olivet Discourse, okay? Uh, Mark tells us, 
that it started by Jesus and the disciples being around the temple and the disciples kind of showing Jesus, aren't these buildings just fantastic and marvelous? I mean, look at what manner of buildings this is. These are. And Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you that uh, not one of these buildings or stones will be left upon another. And then they went from there over to the Mount of Olives, which is why it's called the Olivet Discourse. Okay? Uh, verses 3 through 11 say, As they sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him in private, saying, When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. So, the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Mark 13 tell us, asked him privately on the Mount of Olives uh, when these things will take place. And it will end up taking Jesus two full big chapters to answer their question. Again, this is called the Olivet Discourse. It's the longest recorded answer in the Bible, which is why it's called the Olivet Discourse, not the part of it discourse. That was for you, Jacob. Anywho, Barb's like, I heard that 10 years ago when you were in Luke 21. It wasn't funny then. Don't know why you brought it up now. Barb, I know you love my humor. Um, in, his, in their question, they ask three different things. Did you catch it in uh, Matthew 24, 3? First of all, when will these things be? In other words, when will the destruction of the temple and its buildings be? And the answer is given in Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse, chapter 21, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation is near. Then they ask the question, what will be the sign of your coming? And the third question, what will be the sign of the end of the age, which is answered in Matthew 24, 5. <clears throat> What we have in Matthew 24 and 25 is a key New Testament chapter on the end times, on the day of the Lord. And it has what Alistair Begg calls a telescoping lens as you read it. You may find as you read it that one thing Jesus refers to seems to be applicable to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Then as you keep reading, you may find just with a telescope how it might click out a notch. Uh, you may find that it seems that Jesus is talking about something like the rapture of the church. And then you might click at another notch and then see this seems to be talking about the great tribulation period. And then you might click it out another notch and say this seems to be more of the second coming of Jesus. And then you might click it in a couple notches, click it out. So it really has almost like a telescoping flexible feel to it as you've studied and I've studied it many times verse by verse comparing the different gospels and we're going to look at some of that tonight but I think I did like a six-week series on it and we just don't have that tonight so it's going to feel like six weeks the way that I'm going to cram it down your throat 
but you'll enjoy it, I'm sure. We're more going to look at Matthew's version of it and bits and pieces to tie it into what Paul's telling the Thessalonians. So, um, now, with this, that all gets into the signs, those three questions. What will be the signs of the destruction of the temple, the signs of your coming, the signs of the end of the age? And in our Thessalonian passage, he just told the Salonicans that you don't really need me to tell you the signs because you're sensible people, you've got the word in front of you, and you've got open eyes to current events, and you're able to see it. Uh, these signs of the coming and of the end of the age, we just read many of them in Matthew 24, and he concluded a list of signs in verse 8 by saying, all of these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, you might understand that, because that is a great, understand, or underline, and understand, that's why you underline. You might underline that and make note of it, because really, sorrow is a great word to describe much of the Great Tribulation period. It's also known as another place in Scripture as Jacob's sorrows or Israel's sorrows. And the New American Standard Version says this verse, all these things are the beginning of, listen to it because it's important. We'll see it in Thessalonians. All these things are the beginning of, does anyone know it before I say it? Beginning of the end? Ooh, dude, I like that. Put a pin in that because that's actually coming up later. Good job, Michael. Someone else said it. It's the beginning of birth pangs, right? These are the beginning of birth pangs. So the signs that Jesus told us have the vibe of a woman giving birth. Now, I'm not going to try to be rude or not very nice or anything like that, but we all know that when a woman is getting ready to give birth, I forgot that Kayla was here, so you can just help me out here, that, of course, they begin to get bigger in a wonderful way. There's movement that starts going on. There's a gestation period that has been predetermined nearly to the day. And there's a new pain that comes that becomes more frequent and more intense. Now, all of the signs that Jesus will give us have always taken place, but when they get more frequent and more intense, it's a sign that something is different, something's happening, a birth, a new season, a new time is going to take place. Now, one of the first things that Jesus tells us will be a sign are that many are going to try to deceive us concerning his coming. Uh, that this is not an event we want to be caught off guard by. Because many will be coming in Jesus' name. There's a great need for discernment and hearts that will test all things according to uh, the Word of God. There have always been false Christs, but in 2017, that's on the rise. Uh, Dr. Charles Steinberg, in his study, showed that in the first 100 years after Jesus, no less than 64 men came on the scene claiming to be the Messiah. They gained some notoriety. They would lead some men in the battles against the Romans, but they would eventually all be slaughtered brutally. In the last 60 years in our history, there have been over 1,500 people who've publicly claimed to be the Messiah 
and that with their claim have had a historical note attached to it that would say, these guys are worth mentioning. I have a whole list of it, and if we had time tonight, it'd actually be quite an interesting study, case study. But you know, you can go ahead and pop down to you know, your Hellbop comment cult leaders all the way to the David Koresh's uh, down at Waco and guys like that. And you're hitting the, the, note pretty, the nail pretty near on the head. In 1965, you had Daniel Wasawa in Kenya who said that he was Jesus coming again. He was actually crucified. He crucified himself publicly and he died in that crucifixion. In May 2007 in Orlando, Florida, you had Dr. De Jesus Miranda, who was a man who claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ on the earth. He spoke to hundreds of followers at Lake Eola, telling them, sin no longer exists. God doesn't see people as sinners, but as perfect spirits. There's no devil. He's a Hollywood creation, and prayer is a waste of time. The one practice that he didn't dismiss was the practice of a collection plate, where he would take the money and heap up many fancy cars, estates, homes, inside gated communities that he would go on to sell for millions of dollars. He wrote about himself, if this is a cult, it's the best cult I've ever seen. It's a different gospel with the freedom to indulge because he would go on to teach that there's no sin, no devil, and no hell to pay. His church was called Crescendo and Gracia or Growing in Grace Ministries. Sounds like something that might be the first church you'd go to if you were church shopping in a new town, isn't it? Let's go to Growing in Grace and say, oh, we have a Dr. Jesus here. Well, that sounds pretty nice. Let's hear what he, you know, we want to have our scripture open to see uh, who these guys are. Uh, Years ago, there was a 15-year-old boy that would become known as the Lord of Heaven in a 747. He was a 15-year-old boy from India who claimed to be the Messiah, then started eating meat. He ended up getting fat. His mom, who traveled with him, got mad when he married a staff girl. So she turned to the brother and said, you are now the Lord of heaven. And then he became the Lord of heaven in the 747. So these are are big guys that got big followings. Uh, Study cults, you'll see them growing uh, just radically, uh, comparatively uh, since world history, since the beginning. There's a major rise. Um, It's interesting as we go through these signs quickly, how consistent they are with the seven seals, the first seven seals in Revelation, where the first seal is the Antichrist. Oh, we just had a nice little, something came into Dropbox there. Uh, The first seal in Revelation chapter 6 is the Antichrist coming on the scene. He's a guy on a white horse. He's got a temporary crown. He's got a bow with no arrows. And he comes with very smooth speech, conquering and to conquer. Read about that in Revelation 6, 1. The second seal in Revelation 6 is an increase in wars and commotion. These wars will bring instability and confusion or rumors of wars, as Jesus says. In Revelation 6, 3, says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and see another horse, fiery red went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. So uh, there's a whole lot of wars. There's a whole lot of 
um, death from the world. He's granted to kill, uh, given, giving people the ability to kill one another. And uh, there's all of these wars, but we're not to be afraid of these wars. They will come to pass, but not yet. Um, now, we have always had wars in this world. Only 8% of world history has been totally at peace but it's never been like it has been in the last 100 years. There were two Russian guys that studied military conflicts. And in the 12 centuries, uh, 12 first centuries, there were 2,678 conflicts. In the first 25 years of our last century, really the 1900s, there were 12,835 conflicts where a hundred million people have ended up being killed in the 1900s. So there's a major increase in wars, rumors of wars, and deaths in battle. Now we have what they call war by the megaton, which is nuclear war, where you have one bomb that has more destructive power than both sides had in World War II. We've got Iran right now, North Korea, and Russia, and ourselves, who could all be very dangerous with these nuclear weapons. One professor from Harvard said that in, if a nuclear weapon hit Toronto, a 20 megaton bomb, within a millisecond, there would be a hole the size of a, a skyscraper with heat the temperature of the sun, killing one million people. So it's just the difference of war nowadays from wars back in like the Bronze Age, you know, where you're kind of tossing a little spear at each other, you know, and, or arrows. And of course, it was much worse than that. But we live in a different age now. So when you're hearing of wars and rumors of wars and just mass uh, populations dying in war, it's a whole different world. Uh, if you study the little boy bomb, and there's actually a website you can go to where you drop the little boy bomb anywhere in the world and you could see what kind of radius of damage it would do. And of course, I went to the website and dropped it on Prineville just to see. Uh, it would wipe out, the little boy bomb would wipe all of Prineville out completely, no doubt. But you take the SAR bomb, T-S-A-R, the SAR bomb, it would end up wiping out all of Bend, Redmond, Prineville, Madras, and a good portion of the Deschutes National Forest. So, uh, and with the Tsar bomb, if you saw the blast from 300 miles, your eyes would be burned out and the area would be uninhabited for centuries. So, a lot of fun stuff there. But uh, as you read of Babylon's destruction, even in the book of Revelation, it appears to be a nuclear death. Then you have, Jesus tells us a sign that is also accompanied with the third seal, um, famine okay in revelation 6 5 through 8 open a third seal i heard the third living creature say come and see so i looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand and i heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine now i think that these are actually separate things we're talking about uh when you're talking about the first seals i personally don't believe we're here at this time just interesting how they co, uh, co-go with Jesus' signs. And that is of famine, <clears throat> where war and famine happen to go together. In 1970, three scientists uh, got together, one of them named Paul Ehrlich, Ehrlich. One of them said, 
The 1970s have begun the age of the famine, where a third of the world is well-fed, a third is poorly fed, and a third is starving to death. In 2010, which was the last time I did any major research on this, there were 22,184,000 deaths from starvation in 2010. Uh, That's 63,000 a day. 2,600 an hour and 43 deaths a minute from famine. Approximately 43 people die per minute from starvation. Uh, What helps to add to famine? Rising oil prices, pollution, uh, where quality food is not what it once was, population explosion. It took from Noah's Ark's flood to 1850 for the earth to get to 1 billion people. From 1850 to 1930, we were able to get to 2 billion people. From 1930 to 1960, just 30 years, we got to 3 billion people on the earth. From 1960 to 1975, 15 years, we were at 4 billion people. And in 2009, we were at 6,700,000,000. Now, it's estimated we're at that 7 billion mark. So you see that rapid population growth. Just interesting to notice the times. How could all this kind of stuff be happening? Look at what's going on in the world. Jesus speaks of pestilence in the signs. A result of famine is disease, poor nutrition. When you have population plus famine plus war, you have disease. In America, we have one doctor for every 572 people. In East Asia, they have one for every 2,000 people. In Africa, it's one doctor for every 17,000 people. So this pestilence that Jesus foretells, Webster's tells us it's a contagious or infectious epidemic or disease that is, vir- I don't know if I'm saying it right, Vir-vir- virulent, virulent, thank you, and devastating. Similar to the AIDS epidemic where it's changing form, it's resistant to medicine, and research just hasn't found um, the cure for it. Uh, UNAIDS estimates that 32.9 million people were living with HIV or AIDS worldwide at the end of 2007. That's up from 29 million in 2001. So major epidemic in um, that type of pestilence. Uh, Jesus says that earthquakes will be growing, and that's a sign of the time. Earthquakes in various and diverse places. Uh, In the 9th century, there was one major earthquake recorded. In the 11th century, there were two. In the 13th, there were three. In the 16th, it went back to two. In the 17th century, there were two. In the 19th century, there were nine major earthquakes. And in the 20th century, there were 40 major earthquakes. Then in 1950, it doubled every 10 years. Um, at the time I was studying this, uh, when we were going through Luke, I was teaching all of it discourse when there was a 7.0 earthquake in Haiti that was estimated to have killed 200,000 people. The presence of an earthquake in Haiti uh, is very rare. And then we have the major earthquake in Nepal, 9,000 people dying, but in various places, like on Mount Everest, for instance, where The earthquake happened and the snow came down and ended up killing many people in an avalanche down at base camp. 
One non-Christian geologist said that after studying earthquakes, they go in cycles of birth pangs of a woman in intensity and frequency. Um, Jesus says these things are the beginning of sorrows, or Jacob's sorrows, or birth pangs. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, prophesying of the day of the Lord, Alas, for the day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. But he, Israel, shall be saved out of it. So Jacob's trouble, this time of sorrow. Uh, verse 9, then they will deliver you up. This is, I'm sorry, this is back at the uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 9 in the Olivet Discourse. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation to kill you. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Now the next about 20 verses, we're going to just kind of hop over. They're very important, but not necessarily in line with what we're talking about tonight in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But one thing that I want to look at is in Matthew 24, just 13, 14, and 15. He who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. And then we're going to see that whoever sees the abomination of desolation should hurry up and get out of Jerusalem and get to the mountains. Um, Then Jesus goes on in the Olivet Discourse and speaks of uh, the second coming. He speaks of a parable of the fig tree. And this is what I wanted to look at dealing with the signs that Paul spoke of. Where in Matthew 24, 32, he says, Learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know summer is near. You also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And so, Jesus tells us the parable of the fig tree, which speaks towards signs and seasons, so that we can be prepared for the day of the Lord. Um, Between the fig tree parable and what he spoke about the abomination of desolation, I want to hop back to Daniel chapter 9 with you guys and look at Daniel's 70 weeks. It's a very helpful chapter regarding Bible prophecy. We're reading through Daniel right now at our home, and tomorrow we'll be in Daniel 9, Russell. So you'll be able to understand it, because I got special slides tonight. Hopefully they're up. Um, So in Daniel chapter 9, look at verse 24 through 27 with me. We'll start with verse 24, obviously. 70 weeks, and you might just underline that word 70 weeks, that phrase. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So this is a major prophecy of the seer Daniel, the prophet Daniel, and he's told 
70 weeks are determined, but who is it for? Is it for Americans? Is it for the Gentiles? Who's it for? It's for Daniel's holy city, which was Jerusalem, right? 70 weeks were determined to finish the sin issue in Israel, okay? To make an end of sins. There's a problem even today with where Jews have found reconciliation from their, from their sins. And 70 weeks is determined to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. 70 weeks are determined to finally seal up all vision and prophecy. And 70 weeks are determined to anoint the Most Holy. To anoint Him as King over Israel. For Him to take the rightful place of His Father David. Okay, now, 70 weeks. You might already be like, wait a minute, 70 weeks has already gone by. I know my math, and uh, that seems to have probably gone by. So why hasn't that happened? Well, we want to look at the word week. And I'm going to go ahead and kind of control it for a sec here. In the Hebrew, the word week is heptad, and it means seven. It's a unit of measurement like dozen. Okay, um, And so what Daniel is speaking of is 70 weeks of seven years. Almost like if they were saying seven, 70 dozen donuts. Okay, But instead he's talking about 70 sevens, okay? Um, To understand that's what he's talking about, we go back to what's called the rule of first mention, where the first time we see heptad or week is in the story of Jacob and his working for Rachel. And it says that, uh, we could read the whole story, but we don't have time, but basically Laban says, fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service with which you serve with me still another seven years. So fulfill her week, work for me another seven years, okay, heptad. So Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. Does that make sense to everybody? Because he worked seven years, he worked a week, all right? Um, so if Daniel is told that you've got uh, 70 weeks, essentially what he's being told is you've got 77-year periods or 490 years until this finally takes place. Okay? Everyone following me so far? Anyone blown a gasket yet? Don't feel bad. I'll email you my very fancy PowerPoint presentation. Well, then... Uh, If you're there in Daniel chapter 9, and and maybe you can hop us there, Terry, if you don't mind, getting us back to Daniel 9, verse 25. In 25 it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome time. So, uh, basically what we have happen is a prophecy that Jerusalem's walls will be rebuilt 
um, since the Babylonian captivity. Okay, um, Jerusalem's walls will be rebuilt, and it'll take 49 years, and uh, and then another 62 weeks will take place before we will see Messiah, the Prince, come on the scene. Okay, so the prophecy in verse 25 is. Seven weeks, which is 49 years, right? Seven times seven. And 62 weeks, a total of 69 weeks, which is 483 years. If you look at a Jewish calendar, 483 years times 360 days is 173,880 years, okay? Uh, Days, I'm sorry, thank you. And what we have basically is a prophecy from Daniel to the day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. Messiah the Prince came in. Okay, This prophecy started on March 14th, 445 BC, when the command was given to rebuild the wall. It took 49 years for them to do so, and it was in troublesome time. You remember Sanballat and his gang, how he made it difficult. They had to build it with a, a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Um, And if you take from March 14th and you do the prophecy, 173,880 days goes by. And where are you? April 6th, 32 AD, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem um, on the donkey. So that's 69 weeks, all right? So that's a big part of what needed to happen for, um, for the holy city Jerusalem for Israel to have their sins forgiven, and for Jesus to end up being anointed as Messiah, uh, dealing with Israel's sin problem, being raised up as king. Um, And yet, we're not done yet because we've only accomplished, or only gone by, um, 69 weeks. Okay? Well, let's go to verse 26. And if you don't mind hopping us back there again, Terry, you're doing a wonderful job. Verse 26, we have the prophecy of that prince being crucified and then Jerusalem being destroyed. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, the Romans that is, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end of it shall be with a flood till the end of war uh, and until the end of the war, desolations are determined. So then we move on in Daniel. We have the prophecy of the seven-year tribulation and the abomination of desolations. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. This is what the uh, New Living Translation says about this time where the Antichrist comes and this abomination of desolation that Jesus referred to. The New Living Translation says, and as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Okay, so let's go back to a little timeline here. We've got uh, March 14th, 445 BC, 
173,880 days goes by, and we've got April 6, 32 AD. Um, if you're going to look at it in terms of the vast timeline, uh, on the left, you got the rebuilding of the wall. 69 weeks goes by. Messiah the Prince comes. Then 14,000 days go by. Um, rather, I'm sorry, forgive me. You'll notice the picture of Jesus there. The arrow points to that same period there, April 11, 32 AD, where Messiah the Prince is cut off, Daniel prophesied. But it wouldn't be for himself. It wouldn't be because of the wrongs that he has done. And then 14,000 days go by um, where uh, you'll notice the picture of the, the stones there by the wall. Jerusalem is destroyed. That's, I uh, can't read that far, August, thank you, August 5th, 7th, isn't this amazing PowerPoint? I mean, this is just, uh, this is a high school pastor with clip art. Um, August 5th, 70 AD, something happened that eschatologists in my circle say essentially stopped the stopwatch on God's prophetic calendar concerning De- Daniel's 70th week. So 69 weeks had happened. Jesus came just as was prophesied. He was cut off just as was prophesied. And then Jerusalem was destroyed and the Israelis were vanquished or they were spread throughout the earth. Um, There was kind of this abrupt end to God's prophetic time clock. But miracle above all miracles, something that has never happened before in world history, 1,878 years goes by and the Jewish people still exist and are still alive. In fact, so much so that on May 14th, 1948, Israel becomes a nation again. And there's a picture there of victorious Israelis on their Jeep in uh, Jerusalem waving their Israeli flag. And Israel became a nation again. And uh, it's believed that that was kind of like the stopwatch starting again, where now Israel is a nation And that 70th week or that last seven-year period can take place that will fulfill, uh, as Daniel was told, uh, for his people, the the issue with them being reconciled and and having atonement made for... This atonement's been made, but they receive it to themselves and then Messiah will be crowned prince. Now, what we also read in Daniel chapter 7 is that during that last seven-year period. Uh, Halfway through it, this guy will come on the scene. He's the son of perdition, Paul calls him. He's the Antichrist. He is um, uh, the the little king or the mighty king. And uh, he does what's called the abomination of desolation, where after having rebuilt the temple in Israel, which is a, a, a nation again, um, he makes some kind of object and demands that he himself be worshipped. You see this in Revelation. You see this in the Olivet Discourse. We're going to see it in Second Thessalonians when we get into Second Thessalonians. And so halfway through uh, that 70th week, we'll have the abomination of desolation. And that's what Jesus referred to as we read it in the Olivet Discourse. He says, when you see that happen... And he says, yes, you, when you see it, knowing that people are going to be picking up the Bibles, wondering what is going on with world events, he says, it's time to head to the hills because that's going to begin the second half of the 70th week, which is called the Great Tribulation. 
and things are going to um, get really bad. So uh, all of that ties into the parable we read about the fig tree as well. In, in uh, the scripture, the fig tree is a representation of Israel. Uh, you see it in Hosea chapter 9, Luke 13, Jeremiah 24. But in Hosea 9, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. And, uh, and you remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he saw the fig tree. It looked like it should have had fruit on it. He curses it because he's frustrated. It's a picture of Israel. They've got all these leaves, but there's no fruit. And, uh, and Jesus says, you need to learn from the fig tree. Keep your eye on Israel. Okay, When its branch becomes tender and puts forth leaves, many see that as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Israel becoming a nation again. Uh, the tree that Jesus cursed for its empty religion is beginning to have leaves again. Uh, after 1,900 years in dispersion, this miracle happened. Israel remained a race of people after many different genocides against them. They're still here. Even the most recent one that took place about five years before, they became a nation again when Hitler tried to exterminate the Jews in his final solution. May 18, 1948 is an incredible part of the signs, signs of the times that we need to be aware of as that prophetic time clock clicks once again. It also says in the prophecy of Jesus that the generation will not pass away before these things come to pass. Um, I've always thought of this uh, to be interesting because um, I always thought of my Aunt Diane. And she was born on D-Day. So she was born, actually I think she was born the day after D-Day. Uh, so my grandpa was up fighting World War II. He was flying in a plane over Normandy. And he has a daughter being born. She was born just a few years before Israel became a nation. And so I've always thought, keep your eye on Aunt Diane's gen generation. Uh, because you know we have, not the day or the hour, don't get me wrong in any of that, uh, but we do have seasons and times that could show us um, when are these things going to be taking place. Since Israel has become a nation, we've got a generation living among us that very well could be, uh, it's been known that generation can mean anywhere from 30 to 100 years. So there's this period there that very interestingly could be that we are living in the times and the seasons, not the day or the hour, not going there, but the signs and the uh, times and the seasons uh, that the fig leaves, uh, the, the, the nation of Israel has become a nation again. So I know that that was like, as we often say, a fire hose, and I was trying to shove it in your throat and make you drink all of it. Um, but what we're trying to show you in this is Paul told the Thessalonians concerning the, uh, concerning the times and the seasons, I got no need to even write you because you guys are keeping an eye on the prophetic current events that are going on. And we're able to look at Jesus' all of discourse and say, you know what? If you're talking wars, if you're talking earthquakes, if you're talking famine, if you're talking uh, pestilence, all of these things, if you're talking antichrist and false Christ, there's been a major rise in these things, um, not only over the last 2,000 years, but especially over the last 100 years, 50 years, 30 years, decade. Uh, so it's good to be looking at those things. It's good to... 
um, have them before us. I, I can appreciate the ministries of like the John Corsons, you know, who do the prophecy updates and, and to kind of be following, you know, what's going on. Many times at the Calvary Pastors Conference, they'll have a, a man from Israel come and just kind of fill us in on the latest things to be happening among the nation. Um, all right. Verse 2 tells us, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is coming when you don't expect it. Yet there will be signs and seasons that point to the general time he's coming. If you go back to the Olivet Discourse, I hope you didn't move that finger out of that passage, Matthew 24, 36 But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So we do know that. We do affirm that. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the meal, one will be taken, mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, and really this is the purpose of the Olivet Discourse, is that we would be watching for his return. Watch, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So both John, Matthew, Jesus, Peter, they all tell us that to have an eschatology that believes in an imminent return of Jesus, the point of that isn't just to be able to wave our flag and be proud and boastful in our belief. It's so that we would have eyes that are looking up, living in purity, being about the Father's business, and saying, hey, my Master is coming any minute. I'm waiting for him. On the other hand, it's the wicked servant that says, my master delays his coming. It's interesting that Jesus likens himself to that thief that would come in an hour you don't know. So be ready for it. Has anyone here had anything stolen right under their nose before? There was a season right before we had Russell that uh, we were living at a friend's house in transition in between moving places. And uh, my friend Jason and I had our cars parked right behind uh, their house, like they had like an acre lot kind of out in the country, um, more rural neighborhood parked out there. And in the middle of the night, right below my bedroom window, guys broke into both of our vehicles and stole our CD players out of our trucks. And I was oblivious, had no idea that it happened until I got in that day. And there was just a bundle of wires pulled out of my dashboard. And so it's just a great illustration that Jesus uses to say, be ready, be ready. Leith Samuel said, if there's one thing certain about the timing of the Lord's return, it's this, that we cannot be certain about the timing. <laughs> or as one version says, you know perfectly well that no one knows. It is inevitable, but it's unpredictable. Verse 3 says, and this is in our Thessalonians passage, 5.3, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Will you notice with me the change in tenses here? Paul isn't saying when we say this, but rather when they say this. I believe that this is just a sign that he's not talking about believers being in a place 
um, during the day of the Lord where the wrath and the judgment and the destruction takes place, um, but rather these are people who've rejected the call to salvation. Um, so it's when they think everything's okay. Just as uh, Jesus said Noah in Noah's day, when not Noah, but the people in Noah's day, marrying and giving in marriage. Um, and so when they say peace and safety, then the sudden destruction comes upon them. Robert, Mur- Robert Murray McShane would often ask people, hey, do you think the Lord will return today? And oftentimes the person would say, no. And he'd say, well, you better watch out because those are the days he totally says he's going to come. So be ready. Isn't that so true? I mean, how many of us live today like Jesus was coming back today? It's like, those are the days. Those are the days. Um, when all is well and all is safe are on the lips of men, Moffat said. Notice it's in the present tense as well. It's right at the time of the coming, they'll be saying this, that peace and safety are taking place. There will be a sudden coming when men say peace and safety. Must be distinct from the coming of Jesus described in Matthew 24, 15 35, that I call the second coming of Jesus. Because it happens at a time of great global catastrophe when no one could possibly say peace and safety. When you compare passages like this, there must be two aspects of Jesus' coming. One aspect of his coming is at an unexpected hour that I would call the rapture of the church. The other aspect is positively predicted to the day as you read the book of Revelation. You can actually go to the day that Jesus will return in his second coming through the book of Daniel and through the book of Revelation. I think the imminent return is not speaking to his second coming, but to the rapture. Uh, One coming is coming to a business as usual world. The other is coming to a world in what's called cataclysm. One coming is meeting him in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, we studied that last week, being caught up harpazo or raptus into the air, whereas the other is him actually coming down to earth with the saints to set up his kingdom. So what happens when we say peace and safety? Well, it's kind of an interesting chain of events. As you look at Revelation, there's this twinkle of an eye that'll take place between when all of a sudden those full of the Holy Spirit and saved will be taken out of the world And somehow in that same time frame, maybe even before, Antichrist will be on the world, that son of perdition, and he will be setting up a covenant with many that will be a false peace. He will have what's called a sinister shalom as people get into this life of peace and safety. They'll fall into a world of false hope. Men will think a glory age has begun. Um, Isaiah 28.18 refers to this as an agreement with hell, this sinister scheme, this covenant. It's a false covenant. He's going to turn on his covenant with Israel and end up persecuting them. And so when it seems that peace, safety has finally come to the Middle East, sudden destruction occurs. And the word destruction is used here in Thessalonians. Milligan takes this word destruction to convey the thought of utter and hopeless ruin the loss of all that gives worth to existence. Jesus would say, unless those times were cut short, no flesh would survive. Everyone would die. 
Notice the verse said in Thessalonians that as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, interesting, Paul uses that same picture, they shall not escape. The picture of the pregnant woman suggests inevitable yet unexpectedness. And it reminds me that, and you gals, you've been there, so you know exactly what it's talking about. This is going to happen, but I don't know when. I remember Russell was born two weeks early, am I right? One week early. Anywho, I remember laying in bed a week before his birthday was supposed to be going, I kind of woke up and I go, oh my goodness, I don't know how to change a diaper. Oh no, I got to learn how to do that before next week and go to sleep in a couple hours. Lindsay nudges me and says, my water broke. And I'm like, I don't know how to change a diaper. As a thief in the night, Russell. Uh, Labor pains come unexpectedly, but it's inevitable. Like a pregnant woman thinking it's okay to travel or to go out of town. My baby's not coming, she says. And just when she thinks it's safe, her water breaks and everyone has to help her deliver that kid. We had friends in, uh, in my in-laws' home fellowship group that ended up having their baby in the front seat of the car in the hospital parking lot. And so it's just a great picture of the rapture of the church, isn't it? Or the coming of the day of the Lord. Did I butcher it? Say, right story? Did I say it right? See, told you guys. Two weeks, one week. Um, but notice it says, they shall not escape. When the baby comes, everyone has to help deliver it. That's not what it's talking about. Paul uses what's called an emphatic double negative. Oh, may is how it's said. Probably not. Which basically means in the amplified, they shall by no means escape. So this day of the Lord will come suddenly and quickly. And verse 4 tells us, but you brethren are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. We're not in darkness, but we're in the light. We can see the thief coming and we're prepared for him. Verse 5 tells us, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. In the Semitic languages, literally to be the son of something meant to be characterized by that thing. So we're characterized now by light. We're not characterized by night or darkness. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 5, 8, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So we are characterized by light now. We're not snoozing. We're not living in revelry. We are looking up for the coming of the Lord. We're illuminated. In fact, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says in Matthew 25, 1, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamp and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. 
Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. You see these virgins who were not illuminated. They did not have oil in their lamp, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. They wanted to go ahead and live for themselves and live for the live for the flesh. And they were not concerned about oil in their lamp. And so when the time came, they wanted to ride the coattails of the people around them. And, and you, you can't do that. You've got to have your own supply of oil. It's a wonderful illustration of we need to each individually be illuminated by the Holy Spirit and have light. We want that to be our essence by the Spirit of God in us, lest we be left behind, as you see in that parable. Let's read 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 8. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So those who live in the darkness aren't living sober-mindedly. They're not looking for the Lord's coming. This word sleep is a metaphor and it covers all kinds of moral and spiritual laziness and lack of sense on the subject. It's time to wake up. It's time to be sober. It's interesting that the Greek word sober means to actually watch. Time to be sober and time to watch. Um, Verse 9. And by the way, as we read verse 9, that is the cutest little sound. I'm loving it. I have my own little children that make sounds. I don't even hear, so don't worry about me. Um, But... uh, Verse 9 is one of the greatest proof texts that the church won't be in the tribulation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, the context is the day of the Lord. It's the time of judgment upon the Christ-rejecting earth. Paul tells us that we will not be appointed to that wrath, but rather, rather towards salvation. In Revelation chapter 6, we see that the tribulation is called the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? In one of the letters to the faithful churches, um, Philadelphia in Revelation 3.10, says, because you've kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2.9, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So basically you've got this seven-year period that is specifically for Israel to bring them to repentance. It's not for the church. It's not for the Gentiles. It's for Israel. It's for God to do a work in Israel, though he does pour out wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Uh, we as the bride of Christ, his special treasure, his purchased possession, uh, I don't believe that we're the ones that that wrath is meant for. And I believe that we're in a seven-year period with the Lord in heaven that culminates at the end of the tribulation period in Revelation chapter 19 with what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb as the bride is seen all adorned in white. And then they hop on the white horses and they ride back with Jesus uh, during the second coming where he will defeat his foes, plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 12 and 14 tell us, and set up his kingdom in victory. Um, and there's more that happens after that. But we've got verse 10 to still deal with, and 11. 
This Jesus is the one, verse 10 tells us, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. It's very important that even though Paul was concerned with other matters at this moment, as I've just done a whole lot of talking about eschatology, he has something just bubbling up from his heart. And it's this topic of his death for us that we would live with him. Uh, it was present in his mind even, with he, even when he was busied with other things. 20 years after Jesus' death, he brings it up kind of on the fly that Jesus died for us whether we wake or sleep. We live together with him. And then verse 11, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. One of the things about this eschatological position is that, hey, you know what? At the end of the day, we can comfort one another. That we will not be destined to wrath, but we have been destined to obtain salvation through Jesus who died for us and we'll live with him. There's comfort in that. We can build one another up with that. The Thessalonians were doing that. Let's start doing that. And it's also the same ending that he ended with in 1 Thessalonians 4.18 where he said, therefore comfort one another with these words. Hebert writes, it's clear that in the primitive churches the care of souls was not delegated to an official officer or even the more gifted brethren among them. It was a work in which every believer might have a share. So, before we leave tonight, let's make sure to comfort and edify one another before we take off. Ron, will you close us in song?